Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe and worldwide. Hello, this is Stephen Adams, Global Council Senior Director in London. Uh, I'm here today with two of GC's experts who have just come back from COP25 in Madrid to share their take on the events of last week and to give us a sense of where they think uh, the COP agenda goes next. Um, on the line from the GC Brussels office is Emenegil de Bocabella, who in fact was in Madrid as a negotiator. Uh, she was negotiating on behalf of the Federated States of Micronesia. And here with me in London is Molly Brennan from the GC sustainability team. Um, I, th I think it's probably fair to say that um, the general view of last week's conference was that it was a failure. Um, maybe that was in part a failure because of high expectations. Maybe it's a more fundamental problem. Molly, let's start with you. Do you, do you share that view that last week was a failure? And if so, why? I think last week was a mixed bag, but I think it's largely been seen as a failure because there was lots of high hopes um, for, for, the, for what it could do. And so the, agree the main things that we went to discuss were carbon markets, climate finance, and ratcheting up of ambition. And a lot of people didn't think that the final text met the level of ambition which people were calling for. But do you think that was fundamentally a problem of expectations having been raised by what I think by any measure has been a year in which climate change and the, and the concept of a climate emergency has just risen remorselessly up the agenda? Or is there a more fundamental problem? Um, I think it is, you know, this year climate change has, you know, it's been at the front of everyone's attention. And I think particularly in, in the UK and the EU, it's been an issue which is driving the, the policy agenda for, for, for governments. And so I think from our part of the world, we kind of think that there's this traction going on, but obviously that, that, that position isn't going to be reflected um, everywhere. And that is the kind of overall overarching issue with the kind of multilateral agreement that they're trying to strike is that they're negotiating positions from countries which are facing very different issues. Right. So you, you made the point there that we probably can identify three key pieces of the puzzle for, for COP25, the ratcheting up of ambitions on national climate plans, the climate finance dossier, the Article 6 question. We'll work our way through all of those three. But first, I mean, Adil, do you share, I mean, you were in the room, uh, so to speak. I mean, do you share the view that last week was a failure? Uh, I, I probably, I'm, I'm probably far more optimistic. I mean, it's a process that teeters between, I guess, absolute failure and trepid success. What we've seen is a juxtaposition of, as Molly mentioned, um, the high ambition of the European Union, the high ambition of the United Kingdom. Um, we've seen, obviously, a huge social movement, which has really changed the, the public co cognizance of climate action. But that's juxtaposed against governments who are pulling out of the agreement, like the United States has already started that process. We're seeing other countries like Brazil, who have, um, have really changed direction under the, the new president, Jair Bolsonaro. And you can see that they are being far less ambitious. Uh, they are certainly taking a course uh, where they're trying to I guess limit the amount of actions which they will have to uh, which they will have to implement and that's the issue essentially you, you were at this not an impasse uh, but we're working through a process and it's a process of of consensus it's not a it's not a majority process so every every decision that gets made um, under the conference of the parties at, at these cops that happen every year these are decisions that are made 
by consensus. When you have so many different views in the room and um, the UNFCCC has and the Paris Agreement has 197 signatories, I believe, you're obviously going to have these sorts of issues that come up. The COP wasn't as successful as we wanted it to be. Uh, for one, I expected uh, Article 6, the rules, modalities and mechanisms around Article 6 to be sorted out and that's something that I've been following since the Paris Agreement. Uh, uh, but I think in the same light, we, we need to also celebrate the successes that we have. And I think the public cognizance of climate action, this need to do something, and most importantly, seeing the reactions from corporations um, at COP. You know, it's no longer a fringe event on the side. It's absolutely principal if you're, for, for any big company who's wanting to have a, a, a reputable corporate responsibility approach. But doesn't that point to the important distinction we need to make between the failure to reach agreement at COP, which as you say is ultimately a consensus building exercise in a context in which by any measure consensus must be difficult to achieve, plus the fact that essentially that consensus process is built on um, f moves that many states see as, as making concessions uh, and locking in or binding what they regard as being domestic policy prerogatives. We need to separate those two things from the much, much more complicated picture of what's actually being done on the ground, whether that's in individual companies or in individual countries or in individual localities within countries. Presumably, uh, those two things are, are distinct. There's, there's, there's a sense in which we can measure progress on climate change in ways that are more diverse than just looking at what we can agree in Madrid. I think that um Many years ago, when we when I first started getting into into these COP processes, it was it it, it was seen as something that was an environmentalist, a greeny thing to do. Um, and even even at you know, my professional level as a lawyer, being involved in this sort of thing was was seen as kind of like an outlier thing. And there were far more serious engagements in in international relations and international law. But that's really changed, um, and that's changed that that changed professionally also the way it's seen. But that but the way that um, that the global cognizance of climate action has changed really it, it makes it, it, it takes it from, like I said before, being an outlier and brings it, brings it to absolute necessity, which is what we hear over and over again. Okay, well, let's, let, let's work our way through the three big issues from last week. Molly, explain to us why it was that Article 6, or why it is that Article 6 is so key, so key to last week's negotiations, but also give us a sense of why it turned out to be problematic last week? Um, so Article 6 is arguably the, the machine behind um, global emissions reductions. And so the creation of robust rules will mean that we can trade carbon internationally and have like a kind of effective market of those who are high emitters having to pay for it and those who have the potential to sequester more carbon could then make it a lucrative business and kind of the private sector will then be incentivized to engage in that. So fundamentally it's about how you put a price on carbon in a way that everybody agrees on that then enables carbon trading. And why is that proving so hard? So broadly there's two elements which countries are failing to agree on and those are carbon credit carryover and double counting. Carbon credit carryover relates to credits issued under the Kyoto Protocol. 
So there's estimates that there are around 4 billion unused carbon credits left over. And these are largely in developing countries like Brazil, China, India, but also in Australia. Uh, and the debate there is around whether these, these credits can then be carried forward into the, the Paris Agreement. And the second is double counting. And this pertains to um, text in Article 6 around corresponding adjustment in how countries can account for ops offsetting mitigation projects in their reporting. So for example, a developed country might be funding a uh, emissions reduction project in a lesser, de lesser developed country. And the debate is around who can then claim those carbon emissions. Yeah. And who, who, who's pushing back against this idea and why? So Australia is very keen for this, but there's an alliance of the EU and um, small island um, developing states who, who are really pushing against this. And they've actually um, created this San Jose principles, which is basically saying that this is not a watertight system and to, to make it watertight, these are the things we need to do. And so there's a, qu a clear distinction between the Australia and, and Brazil who are wanting these um, these mechanisms which will allow for double counting and those that don't. But these positions have been going on you know, since the Paris Agreement uh, occurred in 2015 and we're still th like thrashing out that agreement. And presumably there's a clear linkage between the ability of uh, COP signatories to coordinate the way they, um, they price carbon and the prospect of things like carbon border adjustment, adjustment taxes because the, 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 the incentive to create a carbon border adjustment tax is a, flows from the failure to develop a global approach mm -hmm. to pricing carbon. Yeah. Okay. And so the price of carbon has been historically so low that it's been difficult to kind of drive these markets and get engagement from the private sector to... And presumably to that's also kept them. the political pressure for border adjustments lower as well. Yeah. But if the price of carbon begins to rise in individual markets, the pressure for border adjustment becomes yeah. higher. Okay, well that's obviously going to be important to watch. Um, Emin Agilda, you, you were negotiating on behalf of the Federated States of Micronesia. These are presumably states for whom the loss and damage issue is potentially a big one. This was another big issue last week. Um, give us your sense on how that bit of the puzzle evolved, if at all, at, at Madrid. Yeah, well, loss and damage has been um, an area of the Paris Agreement that has that has always been contentious. In Paris, it was something that we were, um, as small island developing states and, and as part of the alliance of small island developing states, that, that group was pushing very much to have a scale-up of financing. Um, the, the reason behind this, of course, is these are countries who uh, will lose, well, they'll physically lose their land. There's a number of uh, small island states in the Pacific, for example, that may cease to exist by the end of this century, both because of rising sea levels, but then also global warming. Um, this is problematic, and they obviously are looking for compensation, some form of compensation. Now, the, the legal kind of sticky end of this is the idea idea of compensation um, means that in a legal term means that you're returned to the position you were in before whatever action that caused damage occurred. Now of course if you take away the physical land which a country sits on, uh, you are then not able to replace that. So what you're looking at is how are we able to ensure that these countries can 
adapt to climate change and, and, and put in adaptation measures? And then what do we do with, for countries who will lose significant portions of their land? Of course, there was no consensus about that. It, it's a very, very, very tough question, uh, but it's something that obviously needs to be dealt with at a global level. Do you think the problem here is just slow progress or is the issue more fundamental around whether in fact uh, this kind of compensation can and should happen? Uh, I think if I'm, I think it will be, I think, I think it's a, a matter of how can we solve this issue because it's almost in some senses um, it, there's no easy answer. There's certainly no blanket answer. So any process that comes up in loss and damage, it, it's never going to, essentially it's never going to be enough. So you're looking for mechanisms and, and you're searching for some way to be able to allow these people, these cultures, these lands um, and the long history to survive and to go forward, knowing that they're under inherent threats. So it, it, it's, it's not an easy, it's certainly not an easy topic area of the Paris Agreement to be able to address. And what about the climate finance file? Molly, what was your sense of progress in that area last week? Um, so, yeah, as uh, Emma and Jill have been saying, this is a very um, sensitive issue. And the US were very keen to push back on, call, on calls from the smaller island states for more climate finance. And, and they did manage to water down some of the commitments in that area. Um, but at the same time, there was um, an expert panel which was agreed on um, to uh, cover loss and damage, and also a Santiago network which would cover the, the technical aspects of that kind of package. And so I think, as, as one of the things we're discussing, it was, it was a mixed picture, but for those who wanted more, it didn't provide it. And the third piece of the puzzle, so let, we, we'll cut that out. I, I didn't realise that, that was, I'm doubling up on the themes, okay? So we just stopped there. Um, the third bit of the, the, the puzzle last week were, uh, were national climate plans. Uh, clearly the expectation or the hope was that it would be possible to put something of a ratchet in progress that's being made there. Um, are we on track, broadly speaking? And if we're not, what's going to have to happen over the next year to change that? No, we're not on track at this point. The nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement are due at the end of 2020 and 2021. And that will essentially be where each country tells the, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Secretariat what they plan on doing to reduce their emissions. I think at this point, I mean, I heard a lot of numbers being batted around, but at this point, under the current nationally determined contributions, we're looking at a global average temperature rise of about three degrees, which is way outside of what our goal is. So our goal is two degrees, but ideally 1.5. So not more than two degrees, but 1.5. One of the things that happened at this COP, which was quite significant, was uh, there was a real push, a united push from, I think it was 72 different countries, which signed up uh, for the, Globe, the, the Climate Ambition Alliance. And these are countries which have pledged to support um, and to legislate for low emissions to no emissions legislation by 2050. This is obviously being led by the United Kingdom, which has been very proud to take the podium as the first jurisdiction to legislate for net zero by 2050. And this was an announcement that was made at the uh, 
Global Climate Summit back in September. But there are a whole lot of other countries that have joined onto this, this alliance and this pledge. And most importantly, you're seeing regions, cities, states, companies, SMEs signing onto this pledge as well. So the idea is that it's transcending not just the normal functions and the normal mechanisms of jurisdictions and countries and states who make laws, but also companies that are saying, you know what, we're going to sign on to this as well. We're going to ratchet up our ambition. We're going to contribute to a high ambition goal, even if that's not necessarily something that's happening at the state level. Uh, California and New York have both signed up. Uh, you also saw a number of Chinese cities, which is really significant because a lot of them have very high emissions per capita. Um, so you're Seeing that this approach, it's very much from the grassroots. It's very much a community-based approach. It's, it's, it's even when there is ambition lacking uh, from national governments, there's a lot of other efforts that are happening to make up for it. Mm. But th this really comes back to the point we were making before about the need to kind of to look past the national level to actually judge where progress is really being made. How just how does how does what happened in Madrid last week um, link into the, the climate and sustainability agenda of the, the new von der Leyen Commission, just from your seat in Brussels? I think one of the things that was really interesting was we saw uh, uh, Ursula von der Leyen present the, Green, the European Green Deal to the European Parliament alongside Franz Timmermans. The next day she presented it to the European Council and the day after that Franz Timmermans took the message straight to COP, straight to Madrid. So it's clear that the European Union is absolutely serious. This is probably the first time that we've seen policy, uh, policy alignment with actual action. Uh, so you're looking, we're, we're seeing a lot of the strategies that are coming out that will come out soon. The European Union is going to legislate wholly for this net zero by 2050 law and that we're expecting that legislative initiative to come out by March. So we're moving quite quickly and it's certainly, we've certainly seen a massive change. It is an absolute priority for this commission and on top of that it's, it's a priority for the commission to spread the word as well. We talked briefly before about the carbon tax, uh, this carbon border tax and what that might look like. And at the announcement both that Ursula von der Leyen made in the parliament, the, the council, but also that um, Mr Timmermans made in COP, we saw that the carbon border tax is seen as an alternative rather than a principal piece of legislation. So it's something that the European Union wants to keep in its back pocket so that they can use if there isn't enough global movement towards decarbonisation globally and a price on carbon globally, uh, which really shows, I think, a, a significant level of, of goodwill and, and kind of expectation from the European Union. The European Union is saying to the rest of the world, we're open for trade, we want to trade with you, but we're going to have some conditions and decarbonisation is about to be one of them. Right. So you made the point there that the UK uh, certainly aspires to be a leader in this area. Uh, COP26 will be in Glasgow next year. Um, let's just finish with a prediction from both of you on what's going to happen at Glasgow and whether we'll be sitting here doing another podcast about relative failure. Mm -hmm. um, Molly, let's start with you. What's, what's, your, what's your sense of the prospects for Glasgow? Um, well, I think if the UK, the UK are putting a lot of weight behind their kind of their position in hold, hosting the talks, but actually reaching the agreement with 
reaching agreement on, on issues like Article 6 is going to take a lot of political capital, a lot of resources, which p potentially at a time um, that we're leaving the EU, that we're trying to strike tra trade deals with some of these countries, is going to be a hard one issue. But equally, I do think that um, the UK will be trying to use this as a to take a leadership position on it hmm. and to kind of show that, that, that they are taking this seriously. And but surely, from I mean, given the problems that you guys have just spent the last twenty minutes describing, this is this is not necessarily just about a failure of diplomacy. I mean, it would be superhuman diplomacy to bring this group of states to consensus. So the UK probably needs to be pragmatic about that. You were moderately more. Uh, optimistic, Emma Jill. What, what's your what's your prognosis for Glasgow? Uh, I think so. There, so between now and Glasgow, there's a number of um, intersessional meetings at the UNFCCC. Um, I think you're going to see uh, a lot of the issues with Article Six ironed out. Um, I think the presidency was probably really disappointed that they weren't able to sign it off, and I think the UK presidency might have been standing in the background, kind of doing a bit of a high five in the air, thinking, "Yes, we'll be able to add that to our list of achievements." Article six is teeteringly close to being finalised. As frustrating as it is that we're still arguing over it, and that it has been it, many, there has been many, many, many hours spent negotiating the details of the the rules and modalities. And, and methodologies that will be used to assess um, uh, international carbon markets, we are getting closer. Uh, I think creating an international carbon market uh, is going, and international carbon trading, we're, we're on the precipice, we're, we're on the edge of it. We're going to see a, a, more, a, a rising carbon price in the European Union. We've already seen it in the last 18 months alone, but we're not, it's not just happening in Europe. Canada, for example, I think within the next 12 months, they will have a carbon price of 50 Canadian dollars a tonne. Uh, California has a, an emissions trading scheme, New Zealand has an emissions trading scheme, China is getting a carbon tax uh, uh, on the books. You will start to see more of these carbon pricing mechanisms happening at a state level and it's obviously logical that they will then be able to trade carbon credits because that's that's essentially how we're going to be able to pick the easy fruit, you know, pick pick the low hanging ripe fruit that is that that we can come up with projects and come up with initiatives that we can do quickly, easily, and effectively to start to reduce our emissions, and then obviously use technological developments later down the track, 2030, 2040, to be able to tackle those those carbon intensive industries and sectors that are harder to decarbonize. Okay, so some potential there for progress across the board. Obviously, this is a moving a, a moving picture. Um, okay, well, thanks very much to Amina Gilda and to Molly. You can read both Molly and Amina Gilda's commentary uh, on the Global Council website, which is www.global-council.com. Uh, thanks very much for listening. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.